Good morning. How are you all today on this warm Sunday morning? Cool in here, though. Got the air conditioner fixed. Amen. <laughs> Adam did that for us. If you have your bulletin, let's look down through our announcements. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Yule in 52 days. Nehemiah 6 and 15. Tonight at 6, we'll continue the video series, Life of Samson, Finger Foods as Usual. <coughs> Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7, Andrea's number, deficit in the bulletin. New Acts and Facts are here for August. Again, thanks to Adam and Phil and Dale have been working outside. Poor guys, hot out there. Phil's working on his, Phil's working on his tan. <laughs> thanks, guys. Again, if you're the last person to leave the building, just kind of check it out and make sure there's nothing left on or unlocked. That'd be great. All right, what have I missed? Anything? Don't forget to look down through our, uh, our church praying list there. Lots of stuff, long prayer list. Stuff coming up this week. All right, our scripture for meditation is found in Judges, the second chapter. Read... Two, I'm sorry, read 6 through 19, page 374 in the Pew Bible.
Let's stand together and ask the Lord to bless our time. Phil, I'm picking on you, so I'll just keep going. You open for us? you take your brown hymnals this morning and turn to number 561, 561 in the brown.
Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> and I am going to usurp this week's congregational hymn. I'm sorry. Um, but I was on a ride to church this morning. Um, there was a song on our playlist, and Jared's like, wow, this is great. And it's a wonderful song, and God laid it on our heart. We said, we can sing this with the congregation, which is why you have the words in your hands. But um, it's not a familiar tune. So I'm going to sing it for you this week. And if you know it, feel free to sing along with me because this was not a prepared solo for me. So sing if you know it. Um, but if not, be prepared next week. We will all be singing it. I'm going to usurp next week's two. <laughs> We're going to sing this one. So two weeks in a row. So save up those um, <clears throat> suggestions. <clears throat> Excuse me. I need a drink. Okay.
scripture reading this morning is Nehemiah 6, 15 through 19. That'll be in page 758 in the Pew Bible. If you'll stand with us, we'll read together. Nehemiah 6, starting at verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of LU in the 52 day in 52 days, sorry. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under the oath of of him since he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, son of Arah, and his son Jehoahan had married the daughter of Meshalum, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. Ask that the Lord would bless his word. You take your red hymnal this time, the red trinity, and turn to 529, 529 in the red.
Our scripture text this morning is Nehemiah chapter 6, beginning at verse 15 and following. If you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. You should find in the pew in front of you a little visitor's card to fill out and throw that in the box, the offering box by the door there as you're leaving and we're happy to have you visiting with us and asking that the Lord would bless you with the teaching of his word. In our last study in the book of Nehemiah, we considered the fake murder plot designed by Nehemiah's enemies to get him to run and hide in the temple and thus destroy his reputation as an obedient servant of God and as a capable leader. Shemaiah was hired by Nehemiah's enemies to prophesy falsely against him, but Nehemiah smelled a rat. Because Shemaiah was hanging around too close, which indicated that he was up to the hoax. As a prophet of God, he should have known the restrictions of God that placed the rule that no ordinary citizen could enter the temple of the Lord. But here he is advocating that an ordinary citizen, in this case Nehemiah, yeah, go on in the temple, you know. He was supposed to go into the temple to hide from uh, would-be assassins that were coming to kill him. Nehemiah's response was uh, wonderful. Should a man like me run away, says Nehemiah, or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not do it. God gave him the discernment that he needed to withstand his enemies after his obedient decision not to enter the temple. You know, the world is full of false prophets, preachers, who will tell people stories they have made up in order to deceive people and get their money. Second Peter 2, Peter talks about that. The Apostle Peter says you need to watch out for false teachers. They're no up to no good. They make merchandise of the Christian faith. They give the gospel a bad name. We all know about this. There's the televangelists on television and so forth and other places. And it's always money, money, money. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. No gospel is given forth. We learn a couple lessons. In times of danger or despair or temptation to sin, we must not fall back on our integrity alone to protect us, but on obedience to what we know to be the word of God. God's never going to ask you to do something or command you to do something that is contrary to his word, his written word. And that's the second point we learn, that the written word of God always takes precedence over the spoken word. If I say something from this pulpit and it comes up in your mind, till, that doesn't sound quite right, check this book. And if what I say does not agree with what the book is saying, then I have misspoken, not intentionally in my case, but because I'm a sinner, uh, I can often say things that are wrong. And the word of God acts as the, can I say, the template 
put the template up over what's being said and see if there's any holes in what's being said. See if there's anything there that is going to misguide you, misdirect you. Okay, well, today's study brings us to the close of chapter 6 and the completion of the wall around Jerusalem. That's what Nehemiah is doing. He's come back from exile, out of Babylonian captivity. Actually, the Persians' have, uh, captivity has taken place after Babylon. And he's come back under a decree of Darius. He's allowed to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. We talked about the importance of that. And yet, as it's not going smoothly here. You know, it's not a piece of cake. The enemies of Jerusalem are still there. They don't want to see the walls rebuilt. And so that is what we're looking at today, the completion of the wall. As we come, let's ask for the instruction of our Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and thank you for these Old Testament histories, men like Nehemiah, that give us uh, encouragement to know that sinners can do those things which are pleasing to you by your grace. You work in our lives. You change our lives. You forgive us our sins and our trespasses through the merit of Jesus. And on the basis then of what our, our work is in love for Christ, we are blessed. Help us as we look at this important study in Christ's name. Amen. We're looking this morning at the completion of the wall that Nehemiah is working on. All of this trickery, this lying, this deceit by Sanballat, the governor of Samaria, and his two allies, Tobiah and Geshem, had but one purpose in mind. Keep that in mind. And that was to halt once and for all the completion of the wall around Jerusalem. Let's get the wall stopped. Let's kill the project. How important is a wall around a city? I mean, we look at our major cities, Detroit, Grand Rapids, Lansing, even the capital in Washington, and we say, none of these cities have walls around them. Everyone who wants to visit may come in, visit these cities. They just can come and go as they please. Very true for us. But none of these cities that I just mentioned are at war with those who live outside its borders. Our cities are protected by federal and state law officers, not walls. None of our cities are under threat of invasion by a hostile force. None of them are vulnerable to economic collapse through a siege or an embargo with cuts off food and water supplies. That's not going on. In Bible days, the walled cities were the refuge for the nation against invasion by hostile forces, attempting coups from local terrorists, national catastrophes like floods and fires and so on. And in times of danger, the farmers, the ranchers, the traveling tradesmen would all abandon their abode outside the city wall and take refuge within the city walls. Because, hey, that's where I'm safe. I'm not safe out here. And it was the wall which kept the inhabitants secure. This is amply illustrated in the illustration Moses gave to the spies whom he sent into Canaan to investigate the land. Here's what he said to them. 
See what the land is like and whether the people who there are there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good for is it good or is it bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How's the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Numbers 13, verse 17 and following. Moses' instruction to his own people as they went in to spy out Canaan. So here's a text which identifies fortified cities as walled cities. You get it? Together. See if they're fortified. They have walls. In other words, the most formidable fortification a city could have against invasion or overthrow was walls. Now understand here, we're not talking about something six feet high. That's not a wall. That's a fence. But 60 feet high. By the way, from the ground outside to the top of our bell tower is about 40 feet. So go outside when you're leaving today, look at the top of our bell tire, and add another 20 feet to it. Now we're talking a wall. We're talking a wall. Understand here that this was their defense. The wall of Babylon, for example, Babylon now, was 87 feet wide. Wide enabling six chariots to ride abreast around the circumference of the city. And to this fact, that cities were generally built on mountains or high terrain, and that added to their height. And so we discover that it was an important search mission which Moses sent those spies on. And sure enough, the report that they brought back after 40 days was this. The people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. Numbers 13, verse 28. And it was this bad report which so demoralized the Israelites that they refused to heed Moses and Joshua and Caleb's counsel who taught them, do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people in that land because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone. The Lord is with us. Numbers 14, verse 9. But Israel's faith faltered. The Hebrew word for wall is a word meaning defense. It demonstrates wherein the inhabitants of the city spent most of their energy in providing protection for their citizens. None of Moses' generation except Caleb and Joshua entered the promised land because of their unbelief. And it was those towering, walled cities which contributed to their lack of faith. Well, God turned them into the desert for 40 years to wander, a year for every day of their original investigation of the land. They wandered and aged and died because of their unbelief. So, the new generation entered Canaan under the leadership of Joshua, And the first city they came up against was what? Jericho. And what was the first obstacle posed by that city, which they had to overcome? Well, it was its walls. There you go. What did God do to Jericho's walls? Anybody remember? Flattened them out. They ran around the city 
blowing trumpets so many times and the walls went flat. And by the way, excavations of Jericho, ancient Jericho, found that the walls went this way, out, not in. You say, well, what's the significance of that? It means no army bashed the walls in. It means that God flattened them out. The inhabitants wouldn't flatten them out. It was the work of God. And what God did to Jericho's walls, he would have done for every other fortified city in the land had that older generation of Israelites only trusted him. But they didn't. Walled cities were so much a model for defense and safety and preservation against dangers in these days that the Bible uses the concept, now the concept of walls, in a figurative or spiritual sense to speak of protection salvation, deliverance of God for his people. For example, Isaiah 26, verse 1. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. The strong city is the one protected by God's walls, his salvation. Or again in Isaiah, this time chapter 60, verse 16 and following. You will know that I, the Lord, am your God, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation. You will call your gates praise. And then the whole chapter deals with the ascendancy of Jerusalem out of the rubble and the ruin of defeat to the place of dominance over the nations. The true Jerusalem, of course, is being spoken about the people of Christ. Zechariah, a prophet who was a contemporary of Nehemiah, was commissioned by God to give this prophecy on the post-exilic Jews coming back to Jerusalem out of captivity And here's what Zechariah was prophesying. Jerusalem will be a city without walls. I myself, God is speaking here, I myself will be the wall. I will be a fire around it, declares the Lord. I will be its glory within. Come, O Zion, escape you who live in the daughter of Babylon. For this is what the Almighty says. Whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. I will surely raise my hand against them. Zechariah 2, verse 4 and following. So God is pledging himself to be the wall of protection around his people. Now the only way these references to God being a wall of protection and salvation could make any sense to the Jews of this culture was due to the fact that the literal walls built around the cities they inhabited were in fact their protection and salvation against the onslaught of their enemies. That's, you know, connect the dots. The physical walls, they they understood that. So when God says, I'm your wall, they could piece it together and know exactly what he was talking about. This parallels our text beautifully when in Verse 15 we read, So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elu, that's October 2nd, 445 B.C. 
the wall was completed. Let me read on. In 52 days, when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. So what is he saying? Well, in less than two months, these Israelites, whom Nehemiah says, worked with all their heart, Nehemiah 4, verse 6, less than two months, they resurrected Jerusalem's walls from the rubble, forged the iron hinges for the gates, hung the doors in place, chapter 7, verse 1. This was a phenomenal feat. Israel knew it, and more importantly, the enemies knew it. No one had thought it possible to even build the wall, period. I mean, when Nebuchadnezzar came in there with his armies, he flattened the walls. Now, we're not talking, you know, little, little stones like this. We're talking stones, you know, bigger than probably from, from the, that window to the over here, something like that. They weighed tons, tons and tons of cut stones. Till the wall was completed in 52 days. Yeah, and, and the enemy put two and two together, and they said, wow, they couldn't have done that except by the help of their God. And the reason being, as Nehemiah says, they worked with all their heart. And they resurrected Jerusalem's walls from the rubble. Now, what is more, these enemies, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, they're listed here. They're the principals involved in all of this. They also knew the role they had played through their intimidation threatened invasion, espionage, false reports, lying prophecies, everything to forestall the work to prevent the completion of the wall. They did their worst. So it is even more stupendous that this edifice reached completion. Jerusalem's walls in the time of Christ were 40 feet high, but added to the depth of the valley which bordered the walls on three sides, Josephus, the historian, reports that the total height from the valley to the top of Jerusalem's walls in the days of Christ was 170 feet, which he called a, and I'm quoting now, a dizzying height. Yeah, think about that. Again, if you go outside, look at the top of our bell tower, that's 45 feet. So think 170 feet. By no stretch of the imagination could such a structure in Nehemiah's day been completed with mere human effort. Remember that Nehemiah had cut his workforce in half to post guards against Sanballat's impending invasion. So God was with Israel. He strengthened them to work night and day. Chapter 4, verse 21. From the first light of dawn till the stars came out, it says. That's how they were working. Verse 22 of chapter 4 says they served as guards by night and workmen by day. How do you do that? I think they were probably living a little by little catnaps here and there. Some way to keep themselves going. 
Who could keep up such a pace? Working day, working night, literally with little sleep. No time for relaxation. No time for the normal necessities of body hygiene like baths and clean clothes. That's mentioned in chapter 4, verse 23. They didn't even change their clothes. They just kept working. I have other questions. How were they kept from sickness? How were they kept from disease? From injury? Due to being mentally and physically fatigued? Chapter 4, verse 14. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Says Nehemiah. Chapter 4, verse 20. Our God will fight for us. That's how they got it done. And we cannot forget how Nehemiah bathed every decision he made with prayer so God protected him as Israel's governor from numerous assassination attempts, which if he had been killed, he would have certainly, it would have certainly brought the project to a halt. So God was the wall of protection around his people as they built the walls of Jerusalem. And the enemy was not only frustrated in its evil intent, but they were filled with fear when they realized that what had been accomplished by the Jews in so short a time span was due to the help of Israel's God. Verse 16. It's important for us to understand here that what instills faith in a people is the performance of God himself, not their own efforts. Israel did the work on the wall. Okay, that's true. But what excited them in heart was the realization that what they had accomplished was impossible from a human standpoint. They knew it. The enemies knew it. The intervention of God strengthened their faith and established their resolve. The New Testament tells us that the reason the older generation of Israelites were unable to enter Canaan was because of their unbelief. Not because of the giants that the spies saw when they went in to check out the land, and not because of the fortified cities that had walls. Hebrews 3, verse 18 and 19, To whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? Ah, there's the problem. They disobeyed. So we see, says the writer, they were not able to enter because of their... Here it is, unbelief. They didn't trust God, the older generation. The application given to us is in chapter 4, verse 2. We also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Simply stated, they didn't believe it. (laughs) They didn't believe it. Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. If you don't trust God when he speaks in his word, when he gives an order or instructions, if you say, ah, that's a bunch of hooey, if that's the way you view uh, the word of God, you will not profit from God's oversight. Several weeks ago, I mentioned that God's laws, when obeyed, brought benefits to Israel, which they never calculated. For example, the law about washing their hands under running water. Do you know that? That's in the book of Leviticus. When you wash your hands, wash your hands under running water. Not in a basin. Not still water. 
but under running water. The law about running water protected them from diseases associated with poor hygiene, bacteria, infection, contagious diseases, and the like. But God never told them that. They just got the rule, use running water when you wash. Now, why didn't God tell them? Well, I mean, he could have said something on on their level of understanding. Maybe they didn't understand about germs and transmission of diseases and bacteria and all of that, but he could have said something. Well, you know, the moment information is introduced like this, the action from that point on proceeds from knowledge in the individual, not from faith. But God wanted Israel to obey him on the basis of faith. A trust factor was involved here. Same occurred with our first parents, Adam and Eve. God did not go into a lot of explanation as to the nature of death and all that death would entail for them and their offspring if they disobeyed his command not to eat of the forbidden fruit. He just said, you eat you die. That's it. And to keep that command, they had to live by faith. They had to believe the word of God and trust their behavior to it. And then Satan comes along with his temptation. And what was the nature of his temptation? Here it is. God knows that when you eat of it, this forbidden tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Genesis 3 verse 5. So the temptation was this. God knows and you can know. You don't have to live by faith in the word of God. You can live by knowledge, just like God lives. In other words, you can be like God. May I say that the great sin of mankind is that man has replaced God with knowledge, as though human knowledge could approach the wisdom of God. In everything from government to mass marketing to computers, to family life, to child rearing, to human sexuality, to the arts, to science. Mankind is saying, you don't need to live by faith in God. All you need is more knowledge, more training, more studies, more university. And in our society, education is God. Education is the answer for everything. But you know, ed- people cannot be educated out of sin. They cannot be educated into moral and ethical living. Educated people are murderers and rapists and thieves and drug users and child molesters and tyrants and so forth. And a doctor's degree behind a name is no safeguard against the wickedness of conduct. The bottom line here is what Paul told the church at Rome. Everything that does not come from faith is sin. Romans 14, verse 23. Everything. say, well, that's a rather sweeping statement. Everything that does not originate in faith is sin. Yes, it is sweeping, and it agrees with 
the writer of Hebrews who told us that without faith it is impossible to please God. So pleasing God's the opposite of sin, right? Now this does not mean, of course, that we can't use our brains and plan things and organize them and develop methods to execute the plans. Nehemiah did not say to the workers on the wall, I don't care how you build it, just slap some mortar on the stones, throw something together any way you like. He didn't say that. No, from the night he toured the ruins, Nehemiah had a plan, a blueprint of how he wanted things done. Faith in God was evident by the fact that Nehemiah never made a move until prayer. And when his enemies began their multiple schemes to stop the project, he continued to pray. And the measures he took protected himself and his people were purely defensive, saying, Our God will fight for us. And guess what? They never lost a life in the whole project. The enemy's threats never materialized. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the enemies were kept at bay and that wall was finished in whirlwind, unheard of, 52 days. God was definitely in the project. He was in the work. Is God in your project? Is he, is he in your life? He is if you're living by faith, but if you're living by your own wits... In your own know-how, there's no way that God's present in those things. Your independent self-reliance on your skills, your knowledge, has driven God to the sidelines. If everything that is not from faith is sin, it's extremely important that you learn to trust God in all the things that you do. What's the mark of faith? Well, it's compliance with the word of God. It is ludicrous to say that you have faith in God while you repeatedly disobey his precepts on everything (laughs) from the Christian work ethic to husband-wife relationships to child-rearing to church attendance to loving the brethren to being financially responsible as the stewards of God's gift ad infinitum on and on and on it goes. Your first response, the very first thing to do as a person of faith is to implement on a consistent basis, what God says in his word about all of these subjects. If instead you're relying on your own skills, your own dreams, your own know-how, or on the council of human psychology, for example, friends, relatives, they're what they tell you, you're trusting in knowledge, not God, and human knowledge that has replaced the wisdom of God. We don't like to admit it, but we who say we live by faith do many, many things on the basis of human education. God has only brought in through prayer to rubber stamp the decisions we've already made without him. And this gives us a desire, our desires and our actions. It gives those things a facade of spirituality which soothes our conscience. In all of this, we've bought into the lie of the serpent, which said to Adam and Eve, you can know like God knows. And the subtlety of this lie is that 
if you can know like God knows, then you don't need God, do you? That's the logical outgrowth of a heart devoid of faith. Boy, have I run into a lot of people. They're trusting in their knowledge. They live by their knowledge, but not by faith in God. So I'm charging each of us to let us search our hearts and see if there is a faithless streak running through it. Nehemiah was faced with a monumental project. But stones among the ruins became a wall around the city in less than two months because he believed that God would prosper the work. Are things going poorly in your life? One bad thing after another? Feeling blue? Feeling depressed? You're thinking, wow, God has deserted me. Maybe it's you that has deserted God. Where's your faith in God to see you through? Where is the obedience to his principles which proves your faith? Anyone can say, well, I believe, I believe, I believe. But life has to match what the words say, or there's no real faith. Now, as a final observation in our text this morning, note that this Tobiah character used his social clout with the nobles of Judah to try to intimidate Nehemiah into doing what he wanted done. Verse 17 and following. He was a son-in-law to one of the influential families in Judah. And his son, Jehoahan, was married to the daughter of Meshulam. You don't know any of these people. Son of Berechiah. Berkiah, whom we observed in chapter 3 as one of the families which worked on the wall. Now, now there's a connection here. The form of intimidation was this, verse 19. The nobles of Judah who were related to Tobiah would make reports to Nehemiah praising the good qualities of Tobiah and then they would tell Tobiah what Nehemiah said in response. Hmm. You know how sometimes you don't really maybe like a person because of the way they act or the things they say? And then their friend starts saying to you, Oh, he's really a neat guy after you get to know him. He's got a lot of good points and qualities that you just don't see yet. This was Tobiah and his tactic with Nehemiah. He used his political and social and religious connections to make inroads with Nehemiah. Tobiah is not the bad guy you think he is. You're, you guys have misunderstood the man's intention. He really wants to be your friend. And then when Nehemiah didn't buy into all of this, they reported back to Tobiah, Nehemiah's negative reaction. So Tobiah then showed his true colors by writing scathing letters to Nehemiah to intimidate him. Verse 19. I don't think Tobiah knew how to play the game very well, do you? 
He got his friends to brag on his good deeds and tell how wonderful he was. And then when Nehemiah remained unimpressed, he demonstrated his true colors by writing nasty letters to Nehemiah. That's not the way you play the game. Brethren, this is the irrationality of human logic, human wisdom apart from the gracious operations of God. There's nothing logical, consistent, reliable, trustworthy in the reasoning and practice of the man without faith. Such people often live for the moment. They make their decisions on emotions. Nothing is sent in cement. They blow with the wind. And because they love themselves above God, they have no qualms about using others to get what they want. Deceit is not beneath them, nor is lying, nor is cruelty, not even murder. Tobiah had no conscience. The people of our world of our world are fast losing their conscience. This is why Paul's practice of ministry was different than all the other preachers of his day. He said to the Corinthians, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except... Jesus Christ and him crucified. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Why, we ask. Why, Paul, did you not use all of your know-how, all of your learning as a student under the foremost rabbi in Israel of the day, Gamaliel, why didn't you pull out all the stops? Why didn't you use your great powers of rhetoric and human logic at your disposal? Why didn't you do that, Paul? He answers, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that, here it is, here's his reasoning, so that, your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. I didn't want you saying, oh, Paul, oh my, what a sophist you are. What a man of wisdom. Oh, can we come to your house? Can we have Bible studies with you? You're better than our rabbis. No, he wanted them to look to Jesus Christ, the great word of God. The message of the cross, the message of Christ crucified, that's the gospel, that's the good news of God. And while it is the power unto salvation, it is at one and the same time a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to non-Jews. You see, it isn't intelligent enough for people. It isn't patronizing to human knowledge for people. In fact, it is self-effacing. It's humiliating to the pride of man. It doesn't give him any credit for being able to think his way out of his own dilemmas with God. It makes God and God alone the author of salvation and the sole proprietor of who will be saved and how. Some of you here may be in this very state of rebellion. I don't know. You're going to think a little more about Christianity 
a little more about the message of a crucified Savior. You want to ponder a little more on how the blood of the innocent can atone for the sins of the guilty. You want to rationalize that man must be, he must be able in and of himself to please God and and buy forgiveness through his good works. You know what? You're going to think your way to hell if you keep that up. Your plan is to think your way into God's good graces, just like Tobiah thought he could outsmart Nehemiah and think his way into his good graces. But without repentance and faith, there was no reconciliation between Tobiah and Nehemiah, and without repentance and faith, there will be no reconciliation between you and God. Until you trust God and lean on his word, and not your own understanding, you will be his enemy sending out nasty messages in an attempt to intimidate God into doing what you want. Let me tell you, God isn't going to capitulate to you. You are the one who must sue for peace. God has what you need. You have nothing that he needs. And what God has, forgiveness and reconciliation with him, and peace he freely gives freely gives to those who ask it's not for sale and you only receive it when you place your faith in Christ and ask him to change your heart and change your life and this God promises he will do for the sincere person who seeks he will find Our Lord Jesus, thank you that salvation is only of you. Help us to see that it's not a partnership. You're not looking at our life and saying, well, they're not so bad. Well, that was a good point. Well, that was a good thought. No. If there's any good, it is, as Jesus said, there is none good but God. So we need God. Lord, we need you to be good for us. We need your righteousness applied to us. And that you willingly do and will give for us by faith in Christ. If we will believe that Christ is righteous for us, that he will stand in as a substitute, that he will plead our case as the scripture says he does, that he will pray for us, that he has died for us, Lord, we will be saved. Otherwise, we won't. I pray that you will help us to see this truth. The world is rushing on its way merrily, thinking that knowledge, 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 that's the thing that's so important. But the human heart cannot know God as he needs to be known. The human heart doesn't even know itself as it needs to be known. Pride is there. That'll kill us if we don't repent. Please, Lord, grant us your repentance and forgiveness. Amen. Our closing hymn is in the brown hymnal. Number 484 in the brown hymnal.
Let's stand as we sing. 484 in the brown hymnal. Tonight at 6 o'clock, we continue in our series on John, and um, it's the video series that we're looking at. So that's at 6, bring out finger food, and we'll enjoy our time of fellowship in the fellowship hall.
in the basement. The Lord bless you and keep you, and wonderful to have you all here this morning on this wonderful, beautiful Sunday morning. We are dismissed. Thank you.